Thursday night with a special episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that dares to mix comics and politics. And tonight we've got a really cool show that seems to do both very, very well. We're going to be talking Thor Ragnarok. Now, a lot of people have uh, praised the film for its, well, beautiful visuals and great humor and action. Uh, deep underneath, there is a hell of a story uh, out there about colonialism and, and refugees. So we're going to be talking about that tonight. Before we introduce our guest, I want to welcome my co-host, Alana. How are you doing? Hey, I'm really excited for tonight's episode. So, um, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into it pretty quick. All right. Uh, returning to the show is David Wilson. He's a Los Angeles-based filmmaker and lecturer at UCLA and Columbia College Hollywood. And, and he has directed numerous short films and two feature films, most recently. Sepulveda, uh, which he co-directed with his wife, Jenna English, writes essays film and culture at GeniusBastard.com. And we'll, of course, be tweeting up his uh, his info for you to follow him. At. Uh, welcome back to the show. It's awesome to have you. Thank you both for having me. Absolutely. Um, you know, this is one of those movies that uh, I sort of tuned out to the information about knowing I would see it no matter what, because I was sure it would be good. And I kind of came into it without a lot of preparation. And I don't, I feel like that was a perfectly fine way to go about it. But I, I know that there's been a lot of excitement and build up for it as well. Um, were you guys like, like, I, like I actually hadn't seen um, the director Taika Waititi's earlier films, although I know I should have, although I have seen the episodes of, uh, Flight of the Concords that he's directed because I've seen a great deal of that show, but um, it was almost like as soon as I started actually paying too attention to it, I was like very impressed that Marvel had done something like hire an interesting director and and you know to to, to helm the movie and it was sort of like every little piece I kind of learned as I kind of came into it was uh, really promising and then I felt like it went even beyond what I hoped it would do. Uh Brandon, why don't you go first with with that, and I'll kind of dive in after. Okay, um, yeah. So I I think for a lot of us Thor fans, who um, there was a lot of anticipation that yes, because Taika Waititi was such an uh, uh, unusual pick, that maybe this would be the one where it finally came together, and it did. And, And you know, let's not. Let's not completely, you know, uh, uh, trash the the the, uh, the first Thor. I thought was actually quite good. I put it somewhere in the middle of Marvel's output. I think Kenneth Branagh did a really, you know, he had a, a difficult character to introduce and sell to a mass audience and did it well. Um, Thor: The Dark World is probably my least favorite of the features uh, so far. Um, it's and it's not even that it's terrible. I've seen I have still seen it about three or four times, but it just it is it just isn't very good. Um, and there really isn't a lot of vision. Let's also note that Thor the Dark World was originally to be directed by Patty Jenkins. Yeah. And the, there's, there's, a, there's been some speculation that 
part of why uh, that, that everyone was unhappy that she wasn't doing it, especially Natalie Portman. That Natalie Portman had really advocated for Patty Jenkins and was really upset and kind of went through the motions on Thor The Dark World, but kind of was like over it at that point. So it is a big deal that they got, uh, you know, an auteur. I mean, I, and I know I also don't really know Taika Waititi's work. I probably have seen his Flight of the Concords. But I've never seen all – I've seen parts, I think, of some of his features, but I've never seen one all the way through. But I had a sense of his sensibility, and it was a very – it was an odd choice, but it, it, it paid off. And, you know, it, it, it's, we'll talk more about it. But, yeah, I think uh, I'd like to see Marvel do a little more of this. Uh, I feel like they maybe learned a lesson. You don't just hire someone who's a really competent director like Alan Taylor. He's a very competent director, but you really need someone with a strong vision, especially I think for something like Thor that is just, you know, you can't just come in having done some game of Thrones episodes and, and make it work. You need <laughs> something a, a little more. Um, but yeah, that's, I think that, 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 that'll do for an opener. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, you know, like I, 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 Sure, I've seen the Flay of the Concords episodes that he's done. It's not like I have a clue who the directors are for all that stuff. Um, but I knew him from the Team Thor shorts that he did um, that that featured Thor and his and his buddy. Uh, so going to that, like I was wondering if the film would kind of play off that humor or not. And you know, clearly Marvel liked what he did with that because it it really I think followed up on Team Thor really well. I mean, if you don't know that, it was basically two video shorts that involved basically Thor, what he does when he's not out superheroing and um, irritating his roommate. And they're, it's really, really funny. Oh, so, wait, so I'm sorry. I thought those were done as promotion for the movie. He did those before they brought him on? Yeah, so those were extras on DVDs, I believe. They were, wow. but I think at that point, they were, they, I think at that point they were shooting the films already. I, I don't think that they were done way in advance of, of Ragnarok. I think they were done sort of as they were doing it at Ragnarok and they, you know, the, they knew Civil War was out. I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they were sort of done once they already knew Waititi was, was the guy. But yeah, I, could be wrong. I have no idea the order. I know they came out before and were out well before because I think one was like Civil War or extra DVD, yeah. so I don't know when, when Ragnarok was being done, but Based right. off of those, I kind of assumed, I hoped that was kind of the, the humor that we would get in the film, and definitely <laughs> the dude's got a vision and a style, and it and it works really, really well here. I mean, I've heard the other stuff he's done is fantastic, too. I've got a friend who talks him up uh, tons with a couple of the movies that he's done. Uh, I, I haven't. But it definitely goes to show that, like, you know, the movie made artistic decisions, and was allowed to have a specific voice, and and that that paid off, and and I think also like the fact that the voice of someone who was bringing specifically like humorous, socially aware work uh, to the table really did make the movie a lot more interesting. Um, you know, like there were a number of existing Thor stories that kind of got mashed up into this, but a lot of it was new um, and certainly how it was synthesized together. And we ended up with a movie that looks at questions like, you know, what happened, like (laughs) the stories that you tell about your successful country today and like, what did, you know, what did it do to get there and how you sort of paper over 
the monstrosities that led up to it, which is sort of a very Thanksgiving um, appropriate theme for us <laughs> to be talking about now. Um, you know, you can go and, and shake your fist about how all these other cultures are so bad and so evil. Like, you know, those frost giants, they're always doing bad things or, you know, those uncivilized people in other countries, but then not acknowledge that the wealth that your country, whether it's America or Asgard has, is been gotten by war and blood and exploitation. Um, and that, that is like, you know, very visually displayed in, in the scene where, uh, Oh, hi everyone. We're doing spoilers, but I'm sure you've all seen Thor by now. Anyway, <laughs> so that, that scene is very well revealed uh, when, when Hela is in the throne room and sort of peels back the layers of paint and plaster to reveal the, uh, the fresco underneath the the beautiful moving fresco. Oh, I love that art underneath. It's this true story of the wealth of, of Asgardian, and it's just like I don't I don't think that that would be there if Taika wasn't making that movie. I don't think that mm-hmm. you know I, I should really take a look mm-hmm. to see. I should really look to see who the scriptwriters are on this right now. The scriptwriters but, um, are actually really interesting. Tell me more. We'll definitely get into that. They're really interesting. So. Um, Obviously, there there's the the folks who were given credit of the the creators. Um, weirdly, Greg Pak wasn't given credit for the whole Hulk uh, Planet Hulk stuff they ripped off of. Three writers are Eric Sin, Craig uh, Craig Kyle, and Christopher Yost. And I gave credit in my review. And I don't I know there was different versions of the script, so I don't know who necessarily did what. Pearson worked on Agent Carter, which I thought was mm. really interesting. So I kind of thought mm-hmm. he might have helped with like Valkyrie and Hela just being ass women. Mm-hmm. You know, he, worked, he was an exec editor on, on Carter. So that would make sense. And then Yost and, and Kyle write a lot of comics and they're really yes. deep in animated stuff. So they've worked on like yeah. a lot of animated Marvel series. So, and that to me might explain the visual and the act and the act aspect of it. So like the three folks that are credited, I thought are like are fascinating, and you can I, you can kind of feel whose hands and and what. Yeah, mm. I believe Yost is Yost had a is at least one Thor credit before this. I think the Dark World, and yes, I he's very much a uh, part of the Marvel animated family, and it's kind of nice that yeah. they're letting people from one wing kind of. To write, write the films, they, they've, I think there's been a tendency to get kind of precious and protective about who gets to write the films. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the comic book writers, yep. for instance, are generally shut out of that. So it's nice to see that Yost has been kind of let in. Funny story, I was at Trader Joe's, and this is about, I don't know, right around the time my son was born, so probably 2012. And I just happened to get into a conversation with my clerk at my the Culver City Trader Joe's. It's like, oh, yeah, Chris Yost, that's my buddy. When we started talking about, you know, the Earth's Mightiest Heroes, that, that animated Avengers uh, series, uh-huh. which is, you know, really good, really did the classic storylines uh, much better than the current show, Avengers Assemble, which is just sort of a placeholder for the films so yeah I agree. He goes way yeah he goes way back and it's and, and you can tell right that these are the writers really brought something to it um it's not the it's not the pair that are doing everything else the pair that have done the captain america films and they're now doing the um, avengers films they're too busy so it was uh but yeah it was it was a very it was a very well-written script I know that I know there was a good deal of improvisation uh, as well, mm-hmm. um, but whoever wrote the line 
Hella's line, where do you think we got all this gold from? That that was kind of a jaw dropping line to hear in something oh. like this, you know. Yeah. You know, you're like, whoa, like you were getting real here, you know. And yeah, it, 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 exactly. It's like uh, you, you never know with these things. Obviously, Taika Waititi is not a credited screenwriter, but clearly somehow his own personal, you know, take uh, as a person of color, as a person of a, from you know who's um, you know partially of a, a, or half of a heritage that's been you know marked by colonialism. I mean, yeah, that had to have he had to have had a hand in that somehow. And yeah, it's pretty. It's sort of like what the best part of what comics, movie book movies can do when they can just touch on these very real things while you're having a, a great escapist time and trying to forget about the fact that the world's going to hell. Although you really can't because Thor Ragnarok. It's like the whole thing is about the world going to hell as we as we've spent the better part of a year worrying that at any minute there's going to be two egomaniac, two infantile egomaniacs going to drag us into a nuclear apocalypse. So yeah. It's, it's escapism, but only so so much. <laughs> Actually, yeah. the film was really good in the escapism. Um, I mean, for me, it was hitting yeah. me when I when she talked about the the gold. She kind of gives her like she's like chewing the scenery, talking about how old it is. That she was kind of his dirty secret, and that she got you got rid of her. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's when it clicked. In me. I was just like, oh shit, this is all about like colonial colonialism, and them like destroying the world like all the nine worlds and and using that to like build their kingdom and how they hit all that I'm like that's really cool and i've talked to other people since and i brought it up afterwards and they all looked at me blankly and they're like i didn't even think about it i thought it was just awesome action was right. like great tools so this is, yeah, this is I that, that i think works really well on level uh, i definitely yeah, think right. a lot of people who seem to be tuned out from that which is probably because the movie is so much fun that yeah, he would right. be entertaining enough even without those layers. But it's a shame because, like, these messages are incredibly important. Um, the other piece, you know, obviously is around refugees. Like, you watch an entire mm-hmm. population of people be pushed out of their homeland by crisis, and the movie really literally leaves them up in the air. I love in the end when, you know, Loki is focused on, well, will the people of Earth accept me? Like, I mean, the question is, will the people of Earth accept Asgardians? Like, I'm migrating in mass. And, you know, in the comics, we have the whole thing where Asgardia gets relocated into Broxton, Oklahoma, which is a really cool storyline from a number of years ago in the Marvel comics. And I I hope the movie actually does eventually plop Asgardia on Earth and, like, deal with that. But, yeah, you have an entirely refugee-based culture and society now of people who weren't used to thinking about themselves like that. You know, Thor obviously is an immigrant to Earth. Um, but it was, he's very much like a living of a, uh, oh my gosh, the word, um, expatriate lifestyle, you know, like, like Superman, like came to earth very clearly as a refugee and Thor is absolutely an immigrant, but he's not, he, but he's moved there because he wants to have a cultural experience somewhere basically. Um, so with this movie, you suddenly have the whole society has to be on the move. And I love them talk with that line, Asgard is its, Asgard is its people. Um, and, you know, being like a Jewish person who very much believes that Jewish people <laughs> right. exist without having a specific country. And I'm entirely fine with that. Um, and that we're like, I, I was like, yes, thank you. We're a people and we're an ethnic group that is encompasses many different things and we don't all look the same. Much like the Asgardians, Jewish people look various ways. Some of us look like Idris Elba. And, um, and, uh, 
Yeah, exactly. Some of us are really lucky. <laughs> and, and um, so, so yeah, it was sort of like, I, I, you know, I don't think I've seen people talk about it in terms of like metaphors for Judaism, really, but I've seen really fantastic mm. critics who are um, coming from uh, Polynesian and Hawaiian cultures talking about what this movie meant to them. And I just want to quote some stuff from fangirl Jean, uh, Jean on, um, on Twitter, who folks should totally follow, fangirl, J-E-A-N-N. Um, she was saying that uh, a lot of white Americans completely missing out the themes of this movie that are distinctly indigenous. It's very interesting to see. Um, it talks about themes like reclaiming cultural identity, stewardship versus sovereignty, maintaining cultural unity in the face of losing your homeland, and etc. And I definitely just suggest, folks, I'll link to her Twitter feed. Go read it. I wanted to get her on the show, but the schedule's were like not reconcilable, unfortunately. Um, but um, but I was just definitely think like go and find some folks from indigenous viewpoints and from Polynesian viewpoints and hear what they've had to say about the movie because um, I you know like when you think about like touches like the way that the Valkyrie the Val the Valkyrie in the movie who does not like actually does not have a name in the movie right Tessa Thompson's character mm-hmm. is you know she's been pushed out of her homeland and like how is she dealing with it she's trying to black out the pain and she's drinking and she like is doing that to sort of protect herself and divorce herself from this trauma she experienced um, that's not nothing you know. Oh yeah, I mean mm-hmm. she's dealing with PTSD. Like the movie straight mm-hmm. up deals with PTSD, mm-hmm. and she's going through it. Like she's sitting there drinking heavily, she's acting out. Like these are some of the signs of someone who is experiencing that. Mm-hmm. The um, I also just want to say about her character. Like, you know, we after the movie came out. Uh, Tessa Thompson said that she regarded Valkyrie as being bisexual like she is in the comics and of course Tessa Thompson definitely talks about the comics and I love that she's very much like yes folks I do read the comics thank you very much Right. Um, and you uh-huh. know Valkyrie is bi in the comics uh, and that has been explicit on the page you know for a few years at least at this point um, watching the movie like there's literally no justification on screen to imply that Valkyrie is heterosexual at all. And there's certainly nothing demonstrating that she's interested in men. So um, to me, it's like, well, obviously she's, she's bi. I mean, she might actually be a lesbian for all we know, but, um, but because, because we see her and her and her, uh, the fellow Valkyrie who, you know, threw herself in front of the, uh, of Hella's dangerous shooting out metal thingies to save her life in a gesture that looks very romantic with a capital R, you know what I mean? Yep. Um, as and well by as the lowercase R. And like, so, okay, by so the- like, her, that's her woman, okay? So she obviously had this female love interest who was a blonde Valkyrie who got killed. Um, and can I just point out that, that, that can I just, I'm sorry to interrupt, can I just point out that that very likely could have been Brunhilde? Yep. I think that's what who it was. looked exactly like her, even had the the of the character. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's like, so we have her and her love in the movie, and she doesn't have a romantic subplot or tension or anything like that with any of the guys on screen. You know, she has a really interesting dynamic with the Hulk, but there's no way, you don't need to necessarily read right. that in any particular way. So we have a woman in this movie who's introduced as a brand new character. 
while Thor is single, Thor and Jane are not together. And I'm totally fine right. with how they broke up off screen. I thought that was really interesting and adult in some ways. Like, we don't need to see everything yeah. to know that it's real. Like, you can just sort of say, like, couple split. It happens. Um, and here's Thor, and he's single. And there's still, there's no, there's no sexual intrigue implied between the two of them at all. There's literally, uh, there's literally three seconds where when they both land in the uh, Grandmaster ship at the same time, sort of face-to-face, there's like the only single moment where there's any kind of... Yeah. Hello? I think we might have lost Brandon. No. Wait, let me look. Did we lose Brandon? I can't look at the control panel. I'll message him. Um, but yeah, like yeah. we basically, it's like, yeah, we, it, she wasn't there for him to make, to be moon eyed at, you know? Yeah. I actually think it's interesting that he tries to flirt with her and she doesn't, she just smacks him down and doesn't take anything of it. Um, I guess Thor is a good I, dude. He's like, Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Yeah. And he, and he does the really stumbly, like, Oh, I wasn't hitting on you and that type of like the the macho thing when he clearly is being rejected and trying to save face a little bit. So I actually thought that was really interesting. The Brunhilda one, I I took it as one that that was totally like the OG comic Valkyrie. I mean, blonde hair. She had I I vaguely remember her having like a blue side, which is the color I associate with that character in the comic. And yeah, I took it of two true. ways: is that it's uh, one. I got a sense of like, okay, there might be something between them because that was very much her throwing her in front of Tessa's Valkyrie, uh, which is a very like loving thing. And the other is, I thought it was a nice symbolic see, uh, moment of passing on the character in a way mm. where, um, you know, just like, hey, we're going to give a nod to the old character. We know this is the old character. She's here and like, we're just kind of passing the torch in a way to the new one. Um, That's cool. Which I thought was That's a cool. neat thing. And I don't know how many people like even had a clue who that was um, in the film. But to me, it was like really nice wink nod of everything. Actually, like, and speaking of like sexuality of the characters, like I love the fact that they made Thor just, failure of him trying to like pick up women and flirt with people and hmm. uh you know have have stumble like there was I forgot what it was when he was in he was in the cage and he like is trying to get Tessa's or to we'll just call her Valkyrie at this point was trying to get mm-hmm. Valkyrie's uh attention and he's like kind of bragging about him like being with women and hitting on women and she's just having none of it at all. And, um, and just then starts kind of like backtracking on it, realizing that she's just not putting up with his shit. Um, which I that thought was a really cool. It, it was something I picked up I like, on. I was like, Oh, I like I've been don't there. remember that sequence at all. Like, this is interesting. I do not remember that sequence at all, but that is cool. Um, Huh. I forgot what I he said. I, sh- I really wish I remember what he said, but it was like, God, Brandon. Okay, Brandon, I think's back. Do you remember? So, do you remember the scene? He's in jail, and he's kind of like bragging, like picking up women and sleeping with women and stuff like that. And Valkyrie just has none of it. And then he kind of starts like backtracking and be like, "Well, I respect women. I like women. I really, really respect women." 
and she's like still yeah, clearly yeah, just yeah. not taking up his shit. And like I was saying, yeah, like that yeah. was a great thing of just putting him in this place because before you know he was this guy hitting women and and people were fawning over him and we have someone that like smacks him down. This is awesome to see. And you know it's Hemsworth. He's like the manliest, good-looking dude. Like even I will completely admit, completely good-looking <laughs> dude. Like totally get it. And you've got this other character just being like, nope, not at all, not not interested, and not put up with your shit. Yeah, I, I can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yep. Hello. Okay. Good. Yep. Yep. Uh, I, I remember the moment. I I, I kind of took it to be. I mean, there's a, you know, there, there is a bit of it where she's sort of like, it's not landing and he's sort of stumbling. And, and you know, of course, he does the great moment where he's like, which I totally support uh, about the Valkyrie being all female. Oh, kind of reminds yeah. me of yeah, yeah. Yeah, his moment Can with Sith in the that? first film. Please. I, I just have to respond to that real quick. Is that actually, so when you were saying that there was improvisation, I'm presuming that actually was one of the bits. And I actually have problems with that. So let me, let me walk folks through this real quick. So when... He realizes that she's from the Valkyries. He, when Thor realizes that she's from the Valkyries, he sort of begins to fangirl out, and he's like, I love the Valkyries. I used to want to be one when I was a kid, and then I found out I couldn't be because I was a guy. And I, like, lo- I was like, yeah, that's totally freaking awesome because men should look up to women's groups. And then he said, you know, which I think it's really great that they're all women. I'm not criticizing that. It's like a cool thing that women can do that now. And I wanted to scream because the important thing about the Valkyries is that this isn't some – like, oh, now women have their own super team that men can't join. The Asgardian culture is not the same as USA culture. In the Asgardian culture, women were always badass warriors. So this improv that he had, I presume improv, I don't know, um, implies Uh, that it's a new new feminist development that women have their own teams, which is literally at odds with both the text and also with What's cool about it, what's cool about it is the Asgardians are egalitarian in the first place. Women have always had their own separate team. They have a specific social role for it. Um, And it felt like an improv for me that came out of the actor not knowing how to conceptualize a world in which women were equal in the first place. Yeah, I think that's the downside of of the improv is that, yeah, you get lines like that, which in the moment I'm sure – felt funny and whatever but right the implications it i mean that's that's the drawback that's the trade-off when you when you do improvisation of that kind is that yeah that that should have been stopped you're you're 100 percent right uh that that, yeah that that was kind of inappropriate it's i mean it's commentary and they're sort of lampooning how men try to seem very sort of woke and and progressive when they're you know also in, in the course of talking to an attractive woman but uh yeah it kind of betrays a lot about what asgard is how, here's my question. Like, how much would he know of that? So, yeah, like, I remember watching that scene, and I kind of cringed a little bit at it. I was like, mm-hmm. great, when he's like, oh, I wanted to be Valkyrie, but then I learned, I, uh, you know, I was a dude. I didn't do it. I was like, sweet. Like, we get a nice reversal of, of the guy feeling like he can't be something. Um, at the same time, like, how much history would they actually know? Because wouldn't you need to kind of cover up the Valkyries a little bit to Capella and like I don't know I just never got quite a sense as to like what was known what wasn't what was Valkyrie's history of Asgard other than like they were they were mythical badass women that was about it yeah I don't know well, that didn't bother know, me, he, but... 
it didn't bother me. Although, yeah, he would. They would. I, I felt watching it, and I've watched it. I've seen it two times now. But I felt watching it the first time, like, well, they would know each other, right? I mean, he's the son of Odin, and at some point, uh, the Valkyries would and and would, their paths would cross with you know uh, Odin's warrior god son. So they would at least have sort of seen each other in passing. Um, so I thought it was a little unrealistic that, you know, she wouldn't, I mean, I get it why she doesn't care to, to, to let on that she knows mm-hmm. that he's the prince of, of Asgard, but I think he would absolutely have probably uh, recognized her because, you know, I mean, there are a lot of them, but it just seems like that, that would have happened. Also, there's a slight change here where the, uh, the Valkyries, you know, they're, tr- they're, they're, they're in the comics and in the myths, they really, they take those fallen warriors to Valhalla mm-hmm. where great warriors get to go. Here, they're sort of more just so, sort of almost like the Asgardian uh, Dora Milaje. They're just sort of this, mm-hmm. this yeah. you know, elite band of, of warriors. So it's a, you know, it's a slight difference. It's a little odd that they sort of did that, given that hell, you know, the, the goddess of death is the, is the villain and, and Valkyrie has a, death connection herself but you know that's that was the season they made so you know for whatever reason but it's a little different from the comics yeah i don't think he would know her though because i got a sense of like they went up against Pella, they they're all butchered except valkyrie the tessa's valkyrie um and she got the help dodge and was like i'm i'm bolting but, and yeah. thor wasn't around at that point in time like i don't think he necessarily he wasn't born was yet. born, he wasn't born so yet. It, it bolted after Hella incident, he might have not been born yet, so he wouldn't have known her, which is why he, I swear at one point he says, like, I thought you were a myth, like that, or, you know, I've heard these things, but wasn't quite sure. It seemed like everyone still thought Val- like Valkyries were myths. Yeah, I, I think, um, I, I don't know. I think that we know that Thor <laughs> we need a timeline. Was, I, I was just, well, we, we know that at some point Thor did not exist and then he was born. Like, we know that he's not a god in the sense that he's always um, you know, always been present. I, and none of that, none of that actually bothered me. I mean, I felt like this was a movie yeah. that I really didn't have a lot of moments of confusion about the plot line or the timeline or any of those things. Um, but I'm also not someone who focuses on those things. I'm the kind of person that leaves a movie and writes a blurb about that improv, but bl- you know, fucking up the feminism that I just ranted to you about. I'm not the kind of person who leaves the movie being upset about timelines. Um, but yeah, I definitely want us to also talk about the, um, the, uh, like just um, another couple of thoughts around Valkyrie's role with the movie, like just having uh, Thor being in this movie and not having a love interest storyline is like, you know, pretty unique, I think for, for this. I mean, I'm sure that there'll be mm-hmm. some like great scholar of, like victim who will come to me and say, like, actually, Ilana, if you di- if you die if you diagram the story and plot roles properly, you will determine that Thor's <laughs> romantic plot line is with person X. But I, I I did not immediately capture something. But um, like I but like I said, like I think it's cool like how they handled. You know, we now know Natalie Portman doesn't want to be in these movies because of what Marvel did to Patty Jenkins, um, and that Thor had to break off with her off screen, and that they're adults, and I thought that was cool. Um, yeah. I also like the fact that since he's not even just, it's not even that he's got no love interest, he gets bested by women constantly. constantly like, Hela yeah. is better. <laughs> in every sense, right. she is his better. She 
his ass multiple times. Um, and even at the end of the film, she whips his ass. Like, he needs to get other people to help, to help defeat her. So she is his better in every sense. And mm-hmm. Valkyrie is his better in a lot of ways, too. Like, she gets uh, the best of him multiple times. Um, yeah. And, you know, she seems to actually hold her own a little better with Hela. But, like, that, I think, is is amazing in that you have two women who aren't just, like, leads in the film, but are better in so many ways of, like, the male lead. You know, we, we've had yeah. Black Widow as a kick-ass character in, in all these Marvel films, but, you know, still, Captain America, I mean, people will argue with me, like, Captain America is still kind of her better. Um, you know, I don't see Black Widow pulling a helicopter, holding it with her arms type of thing. I can believe that, you know, Hel- uh, Hela and Valkyrie both doing that while also kicking Thor's ass and holding the helicopter. Which and they I, also that have me was, specific personalities. They're like not generic. Yeah. They're not like the yep, girl. Yep. I mean, Hela is basically a drag queen. Like from every single moment <laughs> she is on screen. And that's not something that I, I, a lot of people have said that. It's like very, I, it is not something that I'm just reading into it. Like she is wearing a drag headdress and she is a drag queen. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Tessa Thompson is like a hard drinking person and she's a bit of a fuck up. And she's, you know, tries to be bad and tries to be emotionally removed. Um and just trying to sort of be anonymous as well. I mean, so, you know, she has a specific personality and, like, specific thing. And then, of course, when she finally has her big coming out on the Rainbow Bridge, she's, like, firing off multicolored rainbow fireworks, walking on the Rainbow Bridge. And I'm like, yes, this is all very, very queer. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, it's funny. I took, I took Hella as more of a dominatrix. Hmm. Like, I just got it well, very, like... You know, I like a submissive like she wants everyone to submit to her in a literal sense uh, yes. vibe off of the of the character I thought it was actually every time I would see Stan and walk when she was dealing with Carl Urban um, I was fully expecting her to be like lick my boot or like but they're, but they're not like that the, is the thing Carl Urban yeah, like, she, they're just Carl Urban and she's like oh you look like a person who's a follower who wants to better himself you should be my follower and he's like okay and yep. it's interesting because yeah. I, the character I associate Scourge, the executioner, with is the Enchantress, right? And Scourge spends right. his whole life, character, Scourge spends his whole life, you know, just like trying to make the execution, trying to make the Enchantress love him. And then when, you know, he finally has this moment where he has to like face down evil and, he, you know, he dies like shooting everyone in like Scourge's last stand basically in the comics. Well, Simonson moment, perhaps somebody. I've only read it once, so perhaps one of y'all has read it more than once. But um, so I, I kind of thought there might be a, a scourge relationship with between Hella and Scourge, like there was Scourge wanted and like really yearned for the Enchantress in the comics. But I just that wasn't what it was about. Like he just was about bettering himself. You know, we we see what he's like when he's trying to hit on girls. It's what he's doing in yeah. the beginning of the movie when we right. see him. It's a different kind of relationship between them. Yeah, but yeah, Dave shout Ehrlich out to Walter Simon friends. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so none of this Did would happen credit? without him. He was mentioned at the end. Yes, he was. There okay. was like a they're, they're, they're at the very end of the credits. Uh, Greg Pak was also sort of mentioned yep. as like you know thank you to all of you who have uh, contributed immeasurably to this and made this happen. Um, so the critic Dave Ehrlich, who was also was kind of complaining. I saw on Letterboxd 
which I'm on Letterboxd, where I, I do a lot of my film ranting there now instead of on Twitter. But um, he was kind of complaining about the sexlessness of, uh, of the Marvel films, the increasing sexlessness, and that he felt like the world was really kind of a, you know, you have all these beautiful sort of sexy people and somehow they're just, that just doesn't enter into it. I mean, I take, I didn't, wasn't bothered by it. Although, I mean, I could have seen, I mean, I felt like Hella could have gone there a little bit more than she did. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, whatever that it's, I think there's just a lot of uneasiness these days with portraying the, uh, all of this stuff, like as we're trying to figure out how we want to portray men and women and, and relationships and, and sort of in partnerships. And, you know, this sort of, there is, I think, a, a reluctance now to sort of have it become romantic or physical. And of course there's the PG 13 factor. So, you know, you can't do very much of that anyway, but I just feel like, yeah, there is sort of like this reticence to have anyone just, it, it is kind of making everyone a bit sexless. Um, and you know, it's Thor, you know, it seems like Captain America, you can buy that he's a virgin because it's cat, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, Peter Parker, literally, you know, he's a teenager. So, uh, not that, you know, of course, not that, that, that necessarily means he's a virgin by any stretch. But it I mean, I, 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 yeah. I used to, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, but you know, it's like, yeah, it is it, Thor, it, Thor and, and, you know, Tony Stark are definitely the other end of that spectrum. And it seems like these are guys that, you know, have a pretty healthy sex life and so forth. So, you know, it's just something that they're doing. It's a, it's a new day. I mean, even Tony, you know, I, I'm now watching Spider-Man Homecoming almost every week now that mm-hmm. it's on digital download because I have a five-year-old mm-hmm. who's obsessed. So, um, yeah, the line that Tony gives where at the very beginning when he says, hey, May, you're wearing something skimpy, and then he says, I'm sorry, that's not appropriate. Like, that's uh, he, he actually doesn't, it's not even like a winking sort of, that's not appropriate, wink, wink. Like, he, he, the way that Robert Downey Jr. delivers it, it's like he really means, like, I'm sorry, that's not really cool. Let me just, let me start over. Like, it's a different thing than what have happened at the beginning of the, of the series. And it's right. just like, yeah, we're in a we're in a different place with that. And some, I think, yeah, there is just a kind of like, okay, well, let's just let's just not have anyone do anything or not not go there because it's you know it just it's complicated. So well, here's the thing, right? If they had women writing and directing these movies, then they wouldn't have to worry <laughs> about whether or not she was sexist all the time because there would be women right. who would be involved in making these decisions. So they've decided right. that it's safer to take the sex out of the movies than it is to hire women who can write things in ways that are sexy and not sexist, basically, is the decision that they've made. Um, yeah, I mean, look at, look at Wonder Woman. I mean, yeah, she, she yep. watched, she, you know, there's a whole moment where he's, he's naked in front of her. And, yeah, it's, even though they don't, you know, sex comes up in Wonder Woman. Um, yes. And, yeah, it's handled well. Um, but, yeah, you're, you're totally right. You know, I, I mean... And I, th- I think that's how they would have to solve it. There is uh-huh. like just a, there's a lot of amazing campiness. I mean, like, and there is mm-hmm. yes. acknowledged in the movie. Like the Grandmaster, obviously, is an incredibly campy character. Um, you know, you, and you know he's just like throwing orgies with all the people in the world in his orgy ship, as they say. And the fact <laughs> yes. that they acknowledge that he has an orgy ship is like that's true. That's true. And, or, you know, the pleasure ship, which is the orgy ship, and shoots off fireworks, which is not at all phallic, is pretty amazing. <laughs> Although another cool thing I want to shout out about the whole Jeff Goldblum sequences is, like, the movie just talking about, like, oh, we don't want to say the S-word slaves, but that's what they are. And how right. it's, like, right. it's like, it's like, yes, this is, a, this is a thing that people avoid acknowledging, and I'm glad that you're going to talk about it and call out people who refuse to acknowledge enslaved people as enslaved people. And I love that his, like, second-in-command, I don't remember her name, 
I want to call her Topaz. I don't know why. Um, That's she's her like, character know, name. That is. Yes, I remembered it. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that the actress is, like, a grown-ass woman, and she's not skinny. Like, no. just, uh-huh. and, she's, and I think she's probably a person of color. I didn't check. But, like, uh, that, uh, that is, I believe that I was just Rachel looking it up. House. Rachel yep. House, who I believe is is Taika Waititi, she's she's a regular, and that she is at least half uh, Maori. So there we go. Yes, I'll tell so, all yeah. of that. and yeah, so, and, like, she's, and she's 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 forty five and forty six. Yeah, that's great. Right? It is great. Like, yeah, we need absolutely. to we need that. Like, I, she was very fun and and was able to just she was really fun by being literally no fun, and um, <laughs> it was cool to see a woman like that in a role like that. So. Absolutely. She got to play the, state, the straight man, exactly. which was great. She was, and she just said the fucking hard shit that the other people didn't want to admit. She <laughs> right, was not right, at right. all amused with Tessa Thompson being like, you know, trying to bad girl act and being ridiculous. So, and obviously the grandmaster, who was just like 100% campiness all the time. Um, it was pretty amazing. Uh, it, I, worked. I, worked. I actually I, was really nervous. I was really nervous about Jeff Goldblum going into it. Like he was the one that I just wasn't quite sure how he would be on the screen. Cause I generally think of like, you know, what we know of him of, you know, Jurassic park and the silliness from kind of that, this like silliness. I don't even know how to sarcastic, dry humor. And also in independence day, he was kind of very similar. And I'm like, I don't know how that would be in the character. Like, and he nailed it. It was fun. It was entertaining. It was different. Yeah, it was what I he was expected. Right I completely was, yeah, yeah, he was. And that's yeah. what I was hoping for. I mean, you know, I, and I, I had a feeling when they announced that he was the Grand Master, I wondered if he was going to be blue. And, I, of course, like, but I thought, you know, well, that's perfect. You know, I mean, especially given that he's, you know, a brother, in quotation marks, of the Collector. And they're related and they're you know, these, these, they are these really kind of flamboyant, campy, um, you know, uh, figures who right now, are they've never been the main antagonist. But, yeah, they're incredibly powerful and incredibly ancient and, and unkillable. So, yeah, I thought it was a pretty terrific uh, move to, to have him uh, to follow uh, Benicio Del Toro as the second elder. Technically, of course, Ego the Living Planet is the, is a, was the second elder, but they since they had to, you know, kill Ego, they had to make him a celestial because if you make Ego an elder, I, my, this is my, my guess, mm-hmm. is that if you make him an elder, you can't kill him. So they had to change his status so that he could be nuked in, at the end. But, uh, yeah, it's fun that they're bringing these characters, uh, you know, in and using them very judiciously. Yeah. I um speaking of like different weird elder gods, it was cool to see all of these Jack Kirby celestial costumes basically. Yep. Being I did you for when you saw that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was yeah. cool, it was the most Kirbyest <laughs> thing we've seen since we saw the Destroyer in the first Thor movie, you know. I mean, these were more mm-hmm. Kirbyish than the celestial heads in space in um in uh Guardians. This was this was more mm-hmm. it was and it, just the designs on their costumes and their makeup and their ship, it's like he remembered all of the Kirby visual motifs. But what's interesting, and this is something that I've asked Kirby experts about, and, like, nobody can really say for sure, but they all think it's probably true. Like, Kirby included a lot of visual motifs from Oceania art and African art 
in mm. in his art. Um, mm-hmm. Like when you look at characters like The Watcher, you're like, okay, I've like literally seen a West African fertility fetish that looks like The Watcher. Um, <laughs> and like some of these different, so I feel like a lot of the visual motifs that we look at and we're like, that's so Kirby is also Kirby making things that look like they're from Oceania because I've also seen like, you know, lots of stuff in Kirby that looks like it's an Easter Island head. Like he's using all of these non-Western art influences. So it's kind of amazing just to see like that kind of come full circle and have it be, because, you know, Taika Waititi speaks about how he used Aboriginal um, aesthetics in the uh, movie specifically and you know, I mean, it's a huge region, and I don't want to just, like, blur, like, one culture and one style of art with another, but, like, I mean, it's true for Europe, too. Stuff from France does not look completely alien from stuff from the other part, you know, from, from like, stuff from the far end of Europe, either, whatever. Like, um, there is some sort of aesthetic influence that's kind of coming full circle in the visual motifs of the design and, and the backgrounds between Kirby and, and the art from that part of the world. Mm-hmm. No, it was yeah, a very. Was, it was nice. It's nice to see on the hundredth, you know, the first Marvel film yep. after its centennial. It's very, it's very nice, and yeah, you know, it's also a point out this is our first time we're getting three Marvel films in a year. So, um, that's yeah, it's, that's a lot. And uh, but they, this is it's, it's been a pretty strong year for them. I mean, they really. It seems like this is the the we're seeing the fruit now of the sort of. Kevin Feige's Perlmutter uh, gambit where he kind of cut Perlmutter out and I mean yeah it's like ever since that happened it looks like you know it, it, it's it's really serving the films to the better they've, they've gotten a lot better and you know I don't I'm not sure that we would have you know Thor Ragnarok would be this good if Perlmutter was still running things I mean by all by all accounts I mean I, I'm not an insider but yeah it's it's definitely the, the films have definitely improved and you know, and 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 uh, the, the you actually feel there's a vision now that's not being completely diluted by, you know, what toys will sell better than others. I don't even know what toys are out. There's like there's um some large Hasbro figures. And as far as I know, that's about it. Like I can't think of much else that's out specifically for this, but I, I could be wrong. Um, yeah, this is it. Does this doesn't feel like a toy happy movie, which is no, a shame because I want cool Jack spaceship. Kirby figures. Yeah, cool I want spaceship. Jack Kirby figures. Yeah, yeah, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> they lost it. I mean, and they've they're taking a bath on all the uh, hammer toys. You know, with the loss of the hammer, I mean, they still can sell them, but I'm sure that was a. That was a, that had to be a tough call to, to you know finally get have Thor lose the hammer. Oh my god, that um, moment! Which has been so right? hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for it to not be, and and it doesn't get replaced with his you know a, a new one, which is whatever I think a lot of us were expecting. But instead, now it's like you know he's just he's he's done with that. So no, it's a it's a it's a it was a great bid. It's, I mean, this very much felt like. I think one thing about the film is like. It, on the one hand, it's so good. I'm kind of sorry that it's the third one is the, so far and away the best because now I feel like I want more Thor solo films, which I don't know if that's in the cards because of everything going on. It feels like they're winding the character down. 
but it's like they finally deliver the Thor film, which is completely what you want. And now it seems like it's over when you, you know, I kind of like a fourth Thor film to deal with Asgardia and, you know, all and, and, and all this and, you know, and poor Sif. That was another big complaint of mine is the, the loss of Sif, the lady Sif not appearing in the uh, final, what that appears to be the, the final installment. But if she had appeared in it, she would have been killed. So it's yeah. like, ah. Um, <laughs> well, I, my thought is she'd be with Heimdall because, and we could finally deal with the fact that they're brother and sister, which we have not done so far in the series. Um, but uh, I was hoping she'd be with, she would survive by being with Heimdall and mm. not being at the, uh, being there when Hela uh, first, uh, you know, made the scene and started killing everyone. Can but, I just complain uh, about was, the audience? Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> sure. Can I just complain about the audience that I saw the movie with? When Heimdall was first revealed on stage and he's like, Heimdall, resistance leader, I was like, yay! And like literally nobody else in the theater yayed with me. And I was like, what's <laughs> wrong with you? This whole movie, you were supposed to be like, where's Heimdall? Where's Heimdall? Right. And I feel like had I been in some other theaters, the audience would have yayed with me and that my theater was <laughs> like probably disturbingly white or something. But like that shouldn't be... That shouldn't be the criterion for what determines whether or not people shout yay when Idris Elba is revealed as a resistance leader. I vaguely remember we got a couple like woohoos when Idris Elba okay. showed up. Thank you. At least Thank you. there was one woman towards, I think, the front and the left who clearly was an Idris Elba fan. <laughs> I'm getting a nod from the audience by me who's agreeing and, like, and yes, resistance <laughs> I, was and it was not, it was my, my, I know my wife is a fan of his, but she was not the one woohoo. <laughs> cool. Okay. So there are some people out there who appreciate, which is important. Um, but, oh, but I want to talk about this stuff. I want to talk about the hammer real quick. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. The hammer, like his, the hammer is a slapstick joke in the movie. And that's amazing. Like the hammer literally has its own comedy beats and its own rhythm, especially <laughs> in the scenes that it's in with Dr. Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum. Like it is used <laughs> as a comedy gag again and again, like the pauses and the waits and, right. and it, it, it's really slapstick and it's a hammer, which is a great metaphor for like, what are we talking about? We're talking about slapstick. Actually, we're talking about hammers. Um, so that was kind of perfect for me. And also, just Doctor Strange is way funnier in this movie than he is in any of it, than he was in his own movie. That's for sure. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I thought that Hammer was interesting as they set up the beginning, like with the the slapstick of that. He's dealing with uh, when he's like all tied up and he's like waiting for the Hammer to show up and it's not, and he's like, "Yep, give me a minute. All right, give me give me <laughs> a minute." And, like from to me, it was a it was a solid opening, and that that opening out of all all the Marvel films really set up the expectation as to what you were going to see. Like the humor mm. at the beginning was the humor for all the other stuff that was uh, down the line, like everything else that showed up. Um, the, the hammer jokes, uh, the like pacing of it, it just, it was, I, I like, I really can't think of a better opening that really like sets expectation for everything else. Hmm. Well, it I was will a great say, when you watch it, a, when you watch it a second time, you kind of feel like they really the 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 hammer scenes that you get. You really had to feel like uh, the directors really kind of 
going to town with it because he knows he's only going to have it for so long, you know. So you get the great shot of like from the hamster's mm-hmm. point of view as it is hit knocking out people, and but it's keeping Thor kind of in the center of the frame, uh, you know. Yeah, that whole that whole first sequence on um, what is it, uh, uh, Muspelheim, the, the the fire demon planet, uh-huh. uh, fire yeah. that planet. Yeah, he really there's a lot of fun stuff with the hammer, you know, dropping it in the mouth of the beast and so forth. Because yeah, it's like that. That's kind of the the one scene for it. and the, the the way he uses it to to you know smoke out uh, Loki. So yeah, I, I they really kind of the writers and, and the director really kind of uh, they gave the hammer a good send off. But it's also interesting that it does a great job of reminding you how uh, handicapped he is without the hammer. Like this, this is his tool, and without the tool, right. like he has a lot of it. So I like that's the other thing with I think that's really great in that opening is it reminds you and in a way subtly of like this is this is what he has basically and without this hammer like eh, he shoots he sparkle well I mean he forgets about his powers like he actually forgets about his powers essentially in the movie he forgets about his lightning right. sort of like yep. he's been emasculated and has to have that be brought back. Um, but the other thing with it is, like, I want to talk about, like, Viking uh, Norse mythology and hair and hammers. Like, there's whole – and I'm not an expert in this particular stuff, but there's, like, a whole mythology with, like, you know, I don't know. Like, one of the, the – I should have asked Frank. My husband knows this shit because he listens to Scandinavian music all the time. But, like, one of the <laughs> Norse goddesses' hair gets cut off. And the only way to get it is to get it reforged from metal, and they need the hammer or a Thor to reforge her hair. So I just kept thinking about like when her, when he gets his hair cut off by Stan Lee with a massive pair of clippers, that like he can't even actually reforge his hair because he doesn't have the hammer of Thor now. I don't know if the movie has the same sort of hair doesn't come from your head, but rather is forged from metal because the Norse are freaking weird. Uh, as the initial <laughs> myths may have, but most interesting thing, like that hair is not coming back. I mean, it's a movie that's about changing and loss. He loses his eye. His father dies. He's in charge now. They lose their homeland. He has to become a real grown yeah. up. And and on the later, like he's the one who tricks Loki for a change, right? Like yes. he literally tricks yeah, uh-huh, Loki. Uh-huh. No, no. Yeah, and that was so like, gratifying about it is that it's like, yeah, you finally feel like we're going somewhere. I think with Thor The Dark World, you know, half of it should have happened in Thor The Dark World, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it didn't. It just And that felt very much kind of just like, okay, so it's after Avengers and we're back. And it just wasn't there. Was, aside from Loki sort of being morphed into an, a somewhat of an ally, which is, of course, got taken even further in the third film, there really wasn't much happening and that should have happened so yeah it's, it's great that they're finally all these things pay off because of course we're waiting you know thor has his destiny he's eventually got to take the throne and he he does and you know and so forth so it was nice to see all of it move and you know it's very meta he even tells him that you know you've got to life is about growth you know you're the god of tri- you're the trickster god of mischief but you could be so much more you know it's like um yeah it's like they know that we've seen it all before we've seen loki's act and it was they were they handled very well um, how, you know, giving us something that was new and making it feel like this was progressing and also giving us things we hadn't seen. Cause frankly, I feel like this is the first time we really get to see Thor be Thor, you know, to see him really kick ass 
and like take on armies of, of, of fire demons by himself. Whereas I feel like all throughout the solo films and especially in the Avengers, Thor is very much sort of watered down. You know, he, he doesn't, he, yes, he, he took the Hulk on in the first Avengers film, but you know, they, they, they never, we never really get a sense of this guy is class 100 strength. He's the God of thunder and that he's, you know, fully capable of taking on an army all by himself. And finally you really get a sense of that. And then of course at the end, he even kind of elevates to, you know, this, this sort of, his sort of, um, you know, getting the sort of Odin forth or I guess mm-hmm. it's their sort of variation of the, the rune King Thor storyline where he, his powers finally come into their own. So yeah, I just like, it, I was very happy that finally we get to see, you know, that Thor, yeah, he is this incredibly powerful character because sometimes I feel like that gets lost because just to make it more interesting. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really think about cycles, like, you know, his father lost his eye, you know, to get his mm-hmm. powers, and so he sort of has to replicate that in order to fully come into his powers as well. Um, I, I also think, think like, it's interesting, in the fil- the, this film is about Thor being lied to, whereas at least the first film is about yeah. Loki being lied to. Yes. Mm-hmm. I thought that was just like nice bookends to to the two. We haven't talked about Loki much yet. He's definitely a character whose story grew in the telling, you know, based on fan responses to the character in the first place. Um, he obviously was a ton of fun here because he is always a ton of fun. But right. um, I mean, do you feel like he's actually had a change? Do you think he's matured and developed and developed like different? I mean, his motivation is he wants to be loved and there's lots of ways to get people to love you, including by being a good person. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the, the comics that have starred Loki of recently at Marvel, the past, I guess, like maybe five years have all been increasingly, you know, have been really good. And asking a lot of these questions about like, if you're not going to just be the God of tricks and using trickery can be done to help people rather than trickery to be evil and things like that. Like, do you feel like this character of Loki is going to go in a similar direction? Where, where do you think he's heading? Did you think he learned anything from this experience? Hmm. I would say he, at least it feels like he's getting, uh, he's at least acknowledging that what he does has consequences, which is a huge, I think, character development for him. Um, you know, I got the sense of it from him that, you know, the moment where, where Thor is just like, you know, it, you screwed over our father, you did all this stuff, um, you know, you're the reason hell is back, you know, you did this, you did this, do you this, and, and eventually Loki seems to get it. Uh, but at the same time, he also always seems to fall back to the, well, this is what I'm supposed to do, and keeps on being the asshole. So it's one where, like, I think he, I got the sense that he understands his role and kind of relishes, or at least will play his role, but he understands his role has consequences, if that makes sense. Like the first film, it just felt like, you know, the, not for like the first Avengers and the first time I see him, um, is that he's just there to be Loki, he's the god of mischief, he's causing trouble and he's kind of doing his machinations and it's all for his end. Whereas now it's, he's getting more into the, I'd call the trickster aspect of it, Mm -hmm. um, where it's not about necessarily him so much as that it's the him like, 
I'm going to go and be Odin and people aren't going to know, which, you know, and keeps balance. And it's, yes, he gets the rule, but at the same time, it's not like he's like subjugating everybody to, to do evil things and like rule yeah. over earth. He just wants to have like, fun and be loved. You know? Yeah. It seems to be the trickster Loki now who understands that like, stuff has, his actions has consequences. Still going to do it, but at least he gets that there, there's consequences. And, you know, the timeline's a little fuzzy, but, I mean, he did get to rule Asgard. You know, he did, he got to, he got his chance. He got to be Odin. He wasn't, yeah, he was ruling it as Odin, but still, nevertheless, he got to sit in the throne. And, I don't know, maybe he did take something from that experience. Um, Hmm. I mean, obviously, I think because Hiddleston has been so good and has really, it has a a quite devoted uh, following in his own right, I think, yeah, they've obviously had to sort of, change the character or sort of nudge the character into a more of a good bad guy area than just be completely bad. I mean, cause you know, he was, he was pretty bad in Avengers. I mean, he was, mm-hmm. he was, he was real ready to commit genocide, um, you know, uh, without a second thought. Um, and you know, the Marvel movies sometimes struggle with characterization in that they, people do change a lot given, depending on what film they're in. Um, the actors can only do so much to kind of smooth it over. Um, I mean, cause Loki is actually pretty sympathetic in the first Thor film. You know, he, he really, they really do play up the, I just want to be loved. And he's, just, he's a, the, the, he's the kid who finds out he's adopted and that he's not an Asgardian. And he, you know, the whole thing of rulers who are not of the ethnic group that they're ruling, having to kind of go overboard to, to show that they are pure, um, that, that, you know, history's given us that a few times. And then he goes to just being more malevolent and just kind of pure evil in Avengers. And now, and then, you know, he's, he's taken on more shading since Avengers. I, think, I feel like Avengers was a turning point. He's never quite been that bad. And, but, you know, they're going to always leave the door open for him to, to, to be, you know, to, to perhaps create chaos, to perhaps do something. I mean, because clearly he took the Tesseract, and clearly he's probably going to give it to, he'll, he'll probably give it to Thanos. Now, will it be, mm-hmm. what, are, what his, what his uh, motives will be for that? Is it to, because there's no other card to play, or is it because he really wants to kind of curry favor with Thanos again and because you know and, and Maybe switch over to see right right or is this yeah or is it something in between where he's really trying to save people by appearing to go be to be, get in league with Thanos we'll have to see but yeah I mean yeah. I, I, there were times there was definitely times where I kind of wished we could have a break from Loki and just go to other parts of the for Thor mythology and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of characters and worlds that I'm kind of sorry we're probably not going to get to see in the MCU. Um, but, you know, I mean, clearly Hiddleston is, is, is uh, a, a very big part of the, you know, why these movies work. So I completely understand that they always find a place for him. And, you know, yeah, he, he is by his side at the end. I mean, you don't get the sense he's, he's just planning to overthrow him. Like it's like there is, they do, they do grow and, hit their relationship is on another level after this after having to confront Hella. I also want to say that to, to me this is the first MCU film where I really liked the bad guy and that I don't <laughs> the third act like collapses with the bad guy. Oh, um that's yeah. an issue I had with a lot of the MCU films like there's you know a big battle at the end with the bad guy or the bad guy is just a white dude in a three-piece suit, which seems to be, like, their fallback. Um, but, like, right. you know, spoilers for folks out there, like, there's a big battle. The battle actually doesn't... It actually feels like a good battle. 
And then the end That's is true. it's kind of left neckless. Like we never see Hela die. We uh-huh. all were just, mm-hmm. we're left with her battling suture searcher or searcher, searcher, whatever. Searcher. Um searcher, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so fucking funny, and I cheered when he showed up because I knew, I knew. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but like, you, you, we're left with her battling him, so you know, assume that she died or maybe she's defeated, but we're never told she's really. We don't get to see it. So like, this is an. I want to say this is the first film when they had left the bad guy open. Like every single other one, I feel like the bad guy has been killed. Um. You know, we're we're still waiting for Red Red Skull to reappear because he mm, kind of well, just yeah. got sh- shot into the cosmos, and so you know, I and of course, there were, I think there was a draft where he it turned out he was the bad guy of Winter Soldier that uh, Alexander Pierce was going to rip off Red Robert Redford was going to rip his face off and be Red Skull, but then they decided not to do that. So that's one case where, and yeah, there's there's definitely I think in superhero films in general, there's a, a third act is is a challenge. And for instance. I really yep. liked Wonder Woman, but the third act of Wonder Woman is a real slog, and yeah, yeah. That, you know it's the it's the least interesting battle. And yeah, here not a you know, no the, the third act battle really really worked, and you know of course the brilliant use of Led Zeppelin. Let the record show. I've always sort of said Led Zeppelin the event and the Avengers are connected, mm. and largely because of uh, of Thor. So yeah, that was inspired. Um, and uh, yeah, it totally got over all of that. Actually, the, the, the third act is actually very exciting and, and engaging. And yeah, you, Hella is a great. Uh, and, and you know, there isn't even a lot to Hella. It's really a testament to Kate Blanchett's you know gifts as a, a actor and her amazing presence and her amazing voice and everything that she really. Because you know, she she she's incredibly simple. She you know she she was the. Uh, she was the uh, the the hand of the of the king, and she now she wants her place, and that's it. It's, there's really not much subtext or what have you, but you know it, she she it works completely, and yeah, you kind of need her to be that simple. And yeah, she's the goddess of death, and she literally can kill armies by all by herself. Um, it completely worked, and yeah, Marvel has struggled with that, um, and and perhaps you know they they it seems like perhaps. Because I mean, we we had three really great villains uh, in a row this year. Um, that uh, so so again, I mean, maybe it's the the fact that Perlmutter's out of the picture. I don't know, or they're just kind of hitting their stride. But they do seem to have finally sort of cracked the code with the uh, the bad guys. Mm. Um, you know, in terms of really giving us uh, bad guys that that are completely that are compelling and you com- you you kind of root for and then you almost kind of you know um, I don't I didn't really root for ego but I mean at least he was just really unique and sort of and and something different um, and also I can I just say that I, 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 I did, I'm not a, I'm not one who I don't dislike Doctor Strange but I really almost could have not had a Doctor Strange movie and had this be his, yeah. his first appearance in the, in the MCU because mm-hmm. yeah it was. It was a lot of fun. I really just kind of want to get to the part where he's the Sorcerer Supreme, and I don't really need to see him mastering things. And yeah, it was a, it was a fun fun scene to, to to see them play. I agree. I just want to say quickly about Immigrant Song. Like that's been my <laughs> ringtone since cell phones were capable of playing ringtones. Like I had it as a MIDI file on my phone. That's how old it was. And it's just like. <laughs> It's like it's an interesting theme song because obviously, like it's about Vikings. The song is literally about Vikings. Right. But of all the things right. that Led Zeppelin could have titled said song about Vikings, they called it "Immigrant Song," which is interesting because it's 
like, you know, like Vikings were like escaping from the fact that there were more people than were able to survive and the amount of produce that their land was able to create because the weather is terrible up there. Um, but then like, but you know, in some places that involves like raping and pillaging and in other places that involves like, you know, building farmlands and like, it's, it's a complicated thing. So I always mm-hmm. sort of joke that like my, you know, my, my ringtone is immigrant songs. I work for immigrant rights organizations, but um it's not necessarily like the framework, you know, like nobody, like Vikings are awesome, but they're not good. They're not good. Um, <laughs> no. I, but I like that they, they use the song twice, which is definitely one of those, like, yes, we spent this money and now you're going to see us use it um, because we right. spent this goddamn money. But yeah, it, it, it's been about time. I mean, we've also kind of been like waiting for Thor to like actually use some sort of Scandinavian, some more Scandinavian, like black metal, Scandinavian folk metal or Viking metal of sorts in the movie. There's mm-hmm. like a whole mm-hmm. genre of music that exists to be about Thor um, right. and that would be cheap to use. Much of it would probably be too hard, heavy on the ears for a lot of people. Some of it would work. I don't know. I'm still waiting on it. But Mark Mothersbaugh's soundtrack, right? The guy from Devo is, yeah. it's, it's a space soundtrack. Like it works for Thor being in space. It is not like a right. Viking soundtrack. No, well, I mean, they can't, no. they can't do Viking things because all the like Viking black death metal bands are, lost in woods and wandering around. They just couldn't get in contact with them. Man, they're like one of the biggest cultural exports of Scandinavia. (laughs) For real. They're like one of the big, it's like, it's like that terrible pop music I hate. And also like Viking black metal. It's like the main cultural exports. Somewhere in the apartment, my husband is probably growling at me for not pointing out a number of other factors about this. Because that's like, (laughs) that's that's his fandom, his Scandinavian, Scandinavian black metal. But, um, but yeah, like, I think like the, the, you know, the composer being like, quote, the guy from Devo, quote, like, it was a more subtle soundtrack than I thought it would be. It did not call as much attention mm-hmm. to itself as I expected that it would. It works really well for him being in space. But um, right. I didn't, I don't know. I, I kind of was a, little, was a little bit less than I thought it would be in the end. I love that soundtrack. I, I need to buy that soundtrack. I loved that soundtrack. I thought it was just really cool. Could you hum it? Do you remember it? Like what? Um, I'm not, not you have to have it, it, but I'm not. But, no, 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 I'm also not a great person of doing that, anyways. Um, but it's the, it felt like a cool soundtrack for me to like sit down and have uh, on at work. Mhm. Which you know, it's not a knock at it. That's actually a, a good thing. So I like it. I like it. Plus, it's Devo. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm going to support course, Devo. Mother's <laughs> Mother's Law has a long history with um, Wes Anderson, who in some ways I feel like Waititi is somewhat of a in the tradition of Wes Anderson Mm. or sort of some doing some of that kind of thing. I think the idea of, you know, handling characters by treating them, you know, they're like children, Um, you know, Hulk, you know, him telling Hulk, Earth hates you and Hulk's like, no, I want to hear it go, you know, they're like kids and that's a very kind of Andersonian way to approach these kind of characters. Mm. So, yeah, I I always kind of felt like, and I, again, this is the first time I've sat through an entire film by Taika Waititi, but from what I've seen, I always kind of felt like there was some Wes Anderson, you know, sort of, uh, 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 some similarity there and you know mother's bought definitely yeah i mean that is a strong choice it's you know the 80s going for the 80s sound and and um you know the, I, sort of like a john carpenter soundtrack um but mm-hmm. uh, and, you know it could have gone another way and yeah i have always been willing to have the really heavy sort of a thor with a lot of 
you know, really have uh, metal and rock. And yeah, that, that's definitely something we should get, but I guess we won't. But in any case, um, you know, the score work on definitely for this story where, you know, it's not as much about going to the, to, to Alfheim or, or, uh, you know, the, the, the land of the dwarves uh, and going to another planet. So it, it works mm-hmm. for that. Definitely. And it works yeah. for the visuals. Like that's the thing. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, right. doing doing the rock Norse music that we're we're all thinking of that like just wouldn't have worked with, you know, the Sakaar. Like maybe in the in the arena scene a little bit, but I think it still would have yeah. felt out of place considering it wouldn't fit in anywhere else in that world. Well, there's plenty um, of mournful music like that that would work well when the people are, like, being chased into, like, hiding and stuff like that. Like, it could have gone in some of the places that took place back on Asgard. Um, but you know what? If they want to hire me to help figure out, like, better usage of, of metal <laughs> in their movies, I'm here. But, you know, we haven't talked about Hulk at all, really. Like, how, what did you guys feel like about Hulk in the movie? Has anyone heard uh, this idea that I heard this? I don't know if it's true that originally it was supposed to be Beta Ray Bill that uh, was that he meets in the arena, and that they at some point go, "Oh no, no, let's make it Hulk, and that way we can make it Planet Hulk." I don't know if that's true or not, uh, huh. but it just seemed like Beta Ray Bill. This was the this was the moment to get Beta Ray Bill into the into the films, and the ship at the end is almost like Beta Ray Bill's. Uh, spaceship, you know, but uh, well, they, I, I don't they know. do have his head. You see, Beta Ray Bill's head. Yeah, they do have his head. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I haven't heard that. I actually, I, I think the first time I like Buffalo is Hulk. Like, I haven't been the biggest fan of his his take of the character in the in the other films, um, but I enjoyed it here. He kind of felt like I got a a, a vibe off of him, like he was like nebbishy Jewish relative of mine. Um, and I, I liked that aspect of it. Like, I actually really liked his act, and I thought it was very comedic, and he he played well off of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Hulk's a lot of fun uh, in this. It's nice, to, you know. We finally, at last, we get talking Hulk. Um, you know that he's finally moved past just you know the, the sort of uh, savage Hulk. So. That was cool. Mm-hmm. Also, now they they've left the door open for 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 uh, Hulk's son Scar to show up someday if they so choose. Because yep. you know, who knows what he's been doing on that you know, on Scar for 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 two years. So and and time can be you know they they can fudge time any way they want to. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think they really you could argue that they've lost and they, the, the solo films don't have the intimacy that you get in maybe a solo comic um, because they all have to sort of be Avengers, you know, 3.75 with all the, but on the other hand, you know, it is nice to see Hulk back and he's been gone for, you know, it's been, a, it's been a while. And, you know, these two sort of belong together and uh, you know, yeah, the, the, the uh, scene in the, the arena was, was really well done. And, Again, it was like you finally got a sense of, you know, um, it topped the first fight they had in the helicarrier, and you really feel like you get a sense now how powerful Thor is, which you often don't. Yep, That's cool. I, I completely agree with you. Yep, and the other is I, I think the, uh, I think the film was really smart in that because it was this like aglo, I don't even know how to describe. Like Kirby, Kirby infused look, um, it helps off the fact that 
Hulk has to be CGI, and you're not going to get around it. So it felt like the decision where they're like, screw it, we're going all in with the CGI, and we're just embracing the fact that this is going to be uh, an aspect of the film, so let's figure out how to make it work and figure out how to make it work. Huh. I, I don't know. I, I, I felt like the act that the Hulk acting was pretty good and pretty evocative. Um, I obviously, like, I'm a, I'm a personal fan of Mark Ruffalo because his politics are awesome and he retweets stuff that I want him to, but, like, about, like, immigrant rights and such. But um, I liked how they worked in his dynamic and with, with the Hulk and, like, basically, like, you guys are asking me to risk brain damaging myself and to <laughs> like, risk my ultimate loss of self in order to save other people. Like, is what the question and like, do who, you know, do you like, it's, it's, it's really a terrible thing that they're asking him to do. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's all for their entertainment and all that. Yeah, it's uh, well. It's not for their entertainment. It's to save the world, but it's like the only, you know, to turn back into hope. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Like, when he, I met you. I got what you meant. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because he was hope when he landed there, you know. But he's saying that he feels if he had to go back to being Hulk again, he could, could be completely lost, and it's like an enormous right. risk. Like I, I hope that the future movies that have Hulk in it address like that level of fear of loss of self. Well, they have teased that the next, basically this film and the two Avengers four and five are going to sort of, essentially they're saying, what they're saying is since we can't really do planet Hulk, we can't work out a deal with universal for that. We're going to sort of do the sort of a big Hulk film, but break it into three parts and flip it into Ragnarok of, of Infinity War and then presumably Infinity Gauntlet we presume is going to be the title for Avengers 5. So apparently, yeah, they have very specific plans for the Hulk. It's also important to note that, yeah, in the, in the ship, the refugee ship at the end, he's still Hulk. You know, he's not, he, is, doesn't, he does not go back to Banner. So, yeah. yeah, it seems like we're going somewhere with, you know, this, this character and, you know, um, and, and yeah, that they, that they kind of recognize that the stakes are, ra- are, are, being raised and that uh yeah this is a it is a crisis for banner it's not just something he can do and it's interesting that the, the more that he hulk is more of a threat to him now that he's a little closer he's he's not this completely savage entity that now that he's like got speech and he can reason he's actually more of a danger to banner now because he's mm. like more of a complete person now uh that could just completely supplant banner rather than just being banner's id that he's sort of suppressing um you know and i i really i like hulk a lot i, I wish that they you know they, i definitely would love to see them sort of do i i do think he's a great he's great as a supporting character and yet there's you know i wish we could get betty back into these movies somehow because i think she's a really important sort of character mm-hmm. and i i sort of miss uh betty uh and uh you know rick jones i mean i just read the Cree scroll war and like 
<laughs> Rick Jones is kind of like the hero of that. So obviously they're going to have to do they're they're, they're going to discard the entirety of the Kree Scroll War because we you know one assumes that they're introducing the scrolls in uh, Captain Marvel as a setup for their next giant event in Avengers Six or what have you that it'll be the Kree Scroll War Kree Scroll War. So yeah, but it just it was nice to read something with Rick Jones because yeah it's. The, uh, the movies often lack these sort of secondary characters. You get them in the Netflix shows, but these secondary characters who are not super powered, but have to some somehow sort of t- pay the price for being so close to these heroes. I yeah. wish there was a little more of that. I wish we could have that in the films a little more, but hmm. there's just, you know, there isn't a lot of room for that. Those are very good points. Yes, yes, yes. Um, um well we do know that Marvel has been paying attention enough to what critics are saying that they now have made Sky Sky Anus joke in their own movie. <laughs> yes, the devil's anus. <laughs> I was like, we've been making him jokes about sky anuses for years now. I'm glad that you are also on the internet. <laughs> And on that note, does anybody have any final thoughts that they would like to contribute? I'm good. I, I think we hit all my notes. Yeah. yeah um, I guess I just briefly say, you know, I think Thor is. It, it will be interesting to see how much they kind of how much the storylines. I mean, unlike I think more than Cap or Iron Man. Thor really is, you know, there are literally nine realms in his, in his world and there are so many characters and, you know, we didn't get bald. We never got to see Balder, his, his other brother. And, you know, that the whole storyline with Thor's mother, that some has been used and where his mother not being Frigga and, and explaining why he's so powerful. So um, it'll be interesting to see how much of those, you know, even if, if Hemsworth hangs it up and moves on, it will be interesting to see how much, what they do with these, the sort of mythology and if it, it, you know, winds up in these films anyway. And yeah, I mean, a a lot of credit has to go to Taika Waititi for, uh, and also I think Kenneth Branagh, let's not leave him out. I mean, because Mm -hmm. of Kenneth Branagh and Kenneth Branagh doesn't get a lot of attention for this, but Kenneth Branagh, if you watch his films, he's always, even when diversity was not a thing that people were talking about and we didn't even use that word, Kenneth Branagh was, was actually walking the walk. He's always, put African-American, excuse me, black actors or Afro-British actors and always put them in his films in places where they quote-unquote wouldn't, you know, normally be. And mm. so, you know, he laid that groundwork by casting Idris Elba, and of course that was a big, that was a big hullabaloo back in 2010 when they did that. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to see how much, you know, Thor, which on paper, you know, Thor, I mean, it, it's got a lot of baggage. I have a cousin who is a, a baby boomer who um, loves comics, but, you know, because of his age and being sort of having somewhat of a, you know, 60s black nationalist sensibility, Thor was always kind of a little off-putting for him, I think. And, you know, because it's just so Nordic and, you know, this sort of, you know, they're, they're just sort of baggage. And it's interesting how they finally sort of in the films have sort of made Thor this more inviting and multicultural place, even though there's fans that ha- haven't liked it. So, you know, I think that the, the trilogy goes out on a really strong note. Um, so much, so much, so you almost wish they, you know, hope that there's maybe a, a fourth Thor film, even though, you know, to make up for the Dark World kind of just being such a, you know, such a disappointment. But can, you know, kudos to to uh, 
Waititi and the writers. And uh, yeah, it was a, it definitely, for me, it's definitely in the top five for the MCU. Um, and, you know, I'm just, I'm glad Thor got, got a, finally got one into the, into the top of the top of the hierarchy. Thank you. That was really helpful. Yeah. Totally. Great. We love having you Anything on the else? show. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so before we go, uh, you know, we always like to give folks a platform to, to their stuff. So um, if there's places you want people to take you out, sites you write at, stuff like that, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, so, of course, I'm on Twitter, uh, 280 characters on all on uh, as Genius Bastard. Um, I also have GeniusBastard.com, which is also has a there's a, a, a blog associated with that, uh, which I have not been writing for much lately because I've been you know now that I'm a uh, teaching a I'm, I'm a college instructor, so I'm a little my, my time is a little more uh, it's been at a premium, but I, I will contribute there. I'm also on Letterboxd. Uh, under Brandon uh, Brandon David Wilson, so you can look uh, find me there, and I, I usually p- uh, post things there as well. So I'm all over the internet, and uh, very uh, you know, and and yeah, that's where you'll find me. I'm not I'm not hard to find. Awesome. And then you and I are back on Monday. Um, either, and I'm sorry, I don't have it exactly worked out. We will either be talking with Sean Howe. Uh, who's written the amazing book that's the history of Marvel. Um, or we might be with Sarah to talk about Sarah Rasher to talk about Star Trek discovery and whatever is the one we're not doing Monday will be the one we're doing the other Monday. So you're getting these things from us. I promise you. Um, <laughs> but uh, the question sound very good. Thank you. I'm very excited as well. Yeah. The untold Marvel, the untold story um, or the official uh, or the graphic policy official coverage of, Star Trek Discovery. So can't wait to do that. As always, you can find me on Twitter all the goddamn time, even when I need to stop at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And where can we find Graphic Policy? Uh, you can find us pretty much everywhere online, keeping a nice, consistent Graphic Policy. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Tumblr, all the gra- Graphic Policy. And of course, we've got our site, graphicpolicy.com. Uh, news, reviews, news every 24 hours a day. Every hour on the hour, something's new up on the site. So Go check And then if you came in late to the show, want to listen to it again, think it was so awesome, you want to share it with folks, you can do so on iTunes and Stitcher. And probably a couple hours, please go mark as like a five-star thing, whatever the top rating they've got. And it will be on SoundCloud and uh, our site tomorrow and on YouTube on Saturday. So you can go catch it all there. So as always, thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Yolanda. Keep it geeky.